Julie, have you ever done a cold plunge before? Ugh, not on purpose. Uh, on accident? <laughs> well, sometimes, you know, we live in, you know, I live in Chicago and uh, Lake Michigan is is a large body of water. Sometimes kind of feels like an ocean when you come, when you're you know, at the beach next to it. And there's been some times that I think that like early June is a time to jump into Lake Michigan. It is not. It is not the time. And that's not even a real cold plunge. That's probably still only like 50, 60 degrees Fahrenheit. But well, you, we're, we're going to learn about what qualifies as a cold plunge. So so good <laughs> good, good uh, uh, lead in there. Also, yeah, you Thank can you. judge the Lake Michigan water just by how cold your shower is when it starts because that's where the water comes from. Yep, so, there you go. Um, so cold water immersion is, is definitely one of the hottest trends in, in the health and wellness world, especially in the United States. Uh, many people listening right now will know that they've heard of people cold plunging or taking cold showers or taking ice baths. Um, and so we wanted to focus on that for an episode. Um, and it's a personal interest of mine because I wanted some answers. And I think everybody knows that they're kind of hard to find. There's a number of theories of benefits of cold water immersion, meaning getting into cold water. We'll define what that means later. Generally, we think of it for recovery from exercise, muscle soreness, injuries, etc. We always have the images of the professional athletes and ice baths and, and things like that after competing. But the recent, uh, quote, craze has been due to the potential to possibly even improve mental health conditions like depression, anxiety, and overall wellness, and possibly things like longevity. So have you ever heard of the character named Wim Hof? Does that sound familiar to you in any form no, or fashion? No, related to, to the Hoff, to David Hasselhoff? Uh, yeah. <laughs> no? One less F and, and a much <laughs> shorter name. Uh, so, so Wim Hof is also known as the Iceman. He's a character. He's a Dutch extreme athlete, but he became very famous in this world because he does this repetitively and holds like the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest time in cold water. And so he came up with his own method. His method called the Wim Hof method combines breathing, cold therapy, and then a commitment to connect, like connecting deeply to your body. So almost like mindfulness combined with being in a really, really cold environment. And his theory is kind of what launched a lot of this, you know, craze, fad, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. um, more or less, you like powerfully inhale you relax your exhale very long and then you hold it sometimes in between on either end. And then the proponents of, yeah. While so take you're sitting in really cold water at the same Correct. time. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So All yeah, right. you, you get into something that's uncomfortable and then you control your breathing. That is more or less the method. And there's a lot of, specifics and we're not going to go into them. But the proponents of the technique say this, you can increase your immunity, you can get better sleep, you can reduce your stress and you can have heightened focus. And again, we're going to get into whether that's true or not, but that's the concepts behind the method. Even further, there's been reports of improved metabolism, even weight loss from doing this sort of thing. And it all comes down to mechanisms like thermogenesis. Do you remember thermogenesis, Julie? Uh, sort of. I don't know. If don't like don't define question. it. Don't define it. I just, I just Making wanted to know heat. if you remember. Yeah. I just wanted to know if you remembered what that was, but don't, don't define sure. it. But yeah, Got but it. yes, therm thermogenesis, uh, uh, from our, uh, you know, bio days. Yes. Okay. So it, it's right. no secret that we all want to feel better. In fact, many of the episodes or things you see on social media have to do with like living longer, being healthier, always that we want to just, everybody seems to have that goal, um, for obvious reasons. And then in addition, we all think that we need to supplement what we're doing on a daily basis to live longer and be healthier. So to meet the demands, there hasn't been any shortage of startups, creating new products, home plunge baths, cryo spas on every other corner, things that are basically trying to take advantage of people's uh, interest in this. And then it's not just a TikTok trend. I was looking into this Grandview Research who kind of follows, you know, how much 
industries bring in showed that the cold plunge tub market was already at $298 million in 2021. And it's expected to grow to half a billion dollars by 2030. So, you know, this isn't just like things people are putting funny videos on on Instagram mm-hmm. and TikTok. It's it, it's making a lot of money. So full disclosure, I personally love to do the cold plunge myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't used to like it and I started doing it. I don't even remember why I started doing it, but I started doing it. I really like it. And I try to do it like once a day. Um, and I don't personally do it for, I think, the health benefits, but I do like the, the way it makes my body feel, mm-hmm. feel the way it makes my body feel. What I wanted to know, though, is it really doing anything? Because if you look it up on the Internet, it, 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 it if you do a quick Google search right now of cold plunge, you kind of get oriented to where the science is or where pe- what information people are getting. The first four headlines are 14 benefits of a cold plunge. The second headline, you're not a polar bear. The plunge into cold water comes with risks. The third, cold plunge. What is it? Why you should do it. The fourth one, cold plunging is all over TikTok, but is it safe? So it's alternating between you should do it or is it too risky? Um, And so I don't know which ones people are reading, but I can't imagine they're reading like seven before they decide what to do. So we're going to just have a nice, brief, awesome episode with a great uh, expert to figure out what's going on with, is it helping? Is it harmful? How should I do it? How should I not do it? What problems could it cause? You ready for that? I am. I'm controlling my breathing just just in anticipation. Great. Well, we have an expert who's smarter than us, and he's an yes. expert in the body's response to extreme environments, and we're going to get you the answers. Welcome to your doctor friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen, and we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. Okay, we're back and we're ready to figure out if cold water immersion is really beneficial or if it's all harmful or somewhere in between. And we have an awesome expert today. We have Dr. Mike Tipton. Mike is joining us from across the Atlantic. He is a professor of human and applied physiology. He is in the Extreme Environments Laboratory in the School of Sport, Health, and Exercise Science at the University of Portsmouth in the UK. He's published over 750 scientific papers, reports, chapters, abstracts, and books in his research areas of drowning, thermoregulation, environmental and occupational physiology, and survival in the sea. He's been a consultant in survival and thermal medicine in the Royal Air Force, UK Sport, and the English Institute of Sport. He's also a fellow of the Royal Society of Medicine and the Physiologic Society. He was awarded his MBE for services to physiological research in extreme environments, the Ireland Medal for Saving Lives from Drowning Worldwide, and the H&L Swiftwater Rescue Lifetime Achievement Award from the USA. That is really awesome stuff and very different than a lot of the people that we've had on the show. So this is super exciting for me. Welcome to the show, Dr. Tipton. Great pleasure to be here. Hello, Jeremy, and hello, Julia. We're super excited to have you. You're going to help us understand the actual science here and figure out uh, you know, what we should and shouldn't be doing. Let's start with just some basic physiology. As I mentioned in the intro, people are immersing themselves in cold water for a litany of possible benefits. But what actually happens to our body when we make ourselves cold? So the first thing that happens is the skin cools, uh, unsurprisingly, because that's the bit closest to the water. And about 0.18 millimetres below the surface of your skin, you have lots of cold receptors and they fire big time. Um, They peak somewhere between 10 and 15 degrees Celsius. You get the the consequence of that stimulation, which is what we call cold shock back in the 80s. Not because 
of the medical definition of shock, but because it's a shocking experience. And, you know, people listening to this will know that because they've been in a shower that went cold. Um, they've gone into a pool that was cold. So they've, they, they know that you get a bit of a gasp and a bit of hyperventilation. But when the water's very cold, that gasp is big and the hyperventilation goes on a while. So as an example, that sudden cooling of the skin can produce a gasp of between two to three litres. The lethal dose of water into the lung for drowning um, salt water for an average adult is about 1.5 litres. So that first gasp in, um, if you're under the water or you've got a wave breaking over your face, you've jumped from a height, um, can cross the lethal dose for drowning. And for years and years, starting with the Titanic disaster and going onwards, people thought that hypothermia was the big problem with going into cold water. Um, in fact, we know that in cold water, certainly in the UK, about 60% of those that die, die from that cold shock response. Hmm. So very early cooling of the skin and then some cooling of the superficial nerves and muscles that stop you being able to swim. And nobody really is going to become hypothermic if you're an adult, even if naked in freezing cold water in less than about 30 minutes. We're just too big. That's, yeah, that's a, that's a very wonderfully condensed uh, amount of education. I love that. Well, that was 30 so, years. That was 30 years was the research in 45 seconds. <laughs> I, I've now told you everything I know. And so now we're stepping into the unknown. That's, oh goodness, that's great. Yeah. That's, so, uh, say, that's, so say we've survived that gasp, yes. which was, is good. Mm-hmm. What's the next phase of our physiology? Now we're now, you know, in the United States, people are sitting in these cold bodies of water intentionally for two to X, Y minutes. So what's happening next for them? Well, it's probably worth mentioning that the consequence of the cold shock response is not just respiratory, not just a, a gasp and uncontrollable hyperventilation. Because you shut down the peripheral blood flow, which is the body's response to insulate itself, to withdraw blood from the skin, and you push up cardiac output, well, that's the same as turning down all the radiators in your house and turning up your central heating pump. So the pressure in the system goes up. So um, you, you, if you're not already suffering from hypertension, you'll get hypertensive when you go into cold water and you put a significant amount of workload on the heart. And it used to be thought that, you know, maybe five to 10% of the deaths that we see on initial immersion in cold water were cardiac. But we actually think it's quite a lot more now because, of course, a lot of that information comes from experimentation done on young, fit, healthy individuals. Mm. And we're increasingly see, seeing less fit, older individuals going into cold water. Um, The other thing that we know is uh, if you really want a surefire way of producing a cardiac arrhythmia, an abnormal beat, then if you go into cold water and hold your breath, and particularly if you do that whilst you've got some water splashing on your face, um, even young, fit, healthy people will, about 82% of them will show some form of cardiac arrhythmia Um, on the break of breath hold within 10 seconds we call it autonomic conflict because it's fight the fight between the two arms of your nervous system your autonomic nervous system one trying to increase heart rate one trying to slow it and we think that probably accounts for you know some of the problems we see on initial immersion so that's all the first i mean this is the first 30 seconds of immersion yeah, we've now scared scared the shit out of everybody who's getting into uh, cold tubs. That's good. That's a good place well, to start as yeah, physicians, uh, I feel like. Well, I mean, our work underpins the Royal National Lifeboat Institution's work here or to try and get people to respect the water. There's absolutely no problem with thinking about going in it, but you've got to realize we're a tropical animal. We want to be naked in 28 degree air 
which is what most people book for a holiday. Uh, and if you take that tropical animal and you plunge it into water at, you know, 50 degrees Celsius, let's say, oh, sorry, 10 degrees Celsius, 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, we, we use different scales between the UK and the US. Um, then it's, you're going to get you're going to get a fairly significant response. So anyway, some, so that's cold shock. The next tissue, as this cold front moves into the body, the next tissues to be affected are the superficial nerves and muscles. And the limbs are particularly susceptible because they're cylinders. They're fairly thin cylinders. And so they cool quickly, particularly the arms. So what we see after about 10 to 10 to 20 minutes in water between, uh, you know, around between 50 and 58 degrees Fahrenheit, um, you'll see a physical incapacitation. So we've had Olympic swimmers who after, you know, 10, 20 minutes swimming in um, 50 degree water, 50 degree Fahrenheit water um, can no longer swim. And that's simply because of the effect of cold preventing the muscles functioning and the nerves functioning. And if you measure somebody's deep body temperature at this time, it's normal. So this is not hypothermia. This is peripheral cooling and physical incapacitation. It's really interesting. So we classically see, you know, people swimming five or 10 minutes out to sea and then not being able to get back. Uh, and particularly with this big upswing in people doing open water swimming, um, we've seen about a 52% increase in Coast Guard mm -hmm. rescues of people yeah. trying to swim. Goodness. So is there another phase? So now, now, now swimmers can't swim because they've been in there long enough. You mentioned 30 minutes to kind of get hypothermic. Is there anything that happens kind of in between those two phases? No, you, so you get the physical incapacitation, short-term immersion <clears throat> is that second phase. The third phase is after about 30 minutes, people will become hypothermic. Um, or can become hypothermic, but not before. And then the final phase, which is, is not really pertinent to this um, recording, but is uh, a fascinating area, which we've called circumrescue collapse. And that's the collapse of people just before they're rescued without being touched or during rescue or shortly after. Uh, and we think that maybe just the relief of knowing that you're going to survive of a, a rescue craft appearing can actually cause a, a sudden reduction in your cardiac function it may well be another form of autonomic conflict but it's compounded by people saying things like you know relax we've got you you're safe that can actually make things worse rather than better oh so the empathy they teach us in medical school is not good in those situations <laughs> no, no it's not in that situation in that situation um it's more encouragement than empathy you've got to say to people look keep fighting for your survival we're here to help Hmm. Because there's lots of anecdotal accounts. Uh, it's obviously not something you can test in a laboratory, but there's lots of anecdotal accounts of people's condition deteriorating at the point of being rescued, not just in water, but in avalanches and in other situations. Wow. Well, hopefully, luckily for us, what we're going to spend most of the episode on is not uh, uh, getting to that level. Uh, <laughs> and certainly, as I mentioned in the intro, something I have enjoyed doing is getting into to cold water um, and doing that for somewhere between two and for three and a half minutes and, and then getting out. And I think that has kind of been the new age. Maybe I don't personally follow the Wim Hof method, but maybe kind of the disciples of, of the Wim Hof method uh, that's been growing. So for many, this seems uh, completely miserable. In fact, based on our intro, I think it sounds miserable to my co-host, Julie, um, <laughs> but certainly to many of my uh, neighbors and friends too. Um, but is there any evidence behind some of this stuff that people are saying is actually good for us to get in that water? Yeah, I mean, the three claims that you normally hear are, you know, it makes me alive, feel alive, activated, I'm set up for the day. 
Um, now, that's there is some pretty good evidence to support that because going along with the cold shock response, the gasping, hyperventilation, cardiac things, is, of course, the release of a lot of stress hormones. Mm. Uh, and if you're releasing cortisol, you know, adrenaline, um, then you are going to be um, prepared because it's part of the fight or flight response. Mm-hmm. It's just totally inappropriate in water under normal circumstances. But that's what, so we, I think we understand that, you know, if you take a tropica, tropical animal and you plunge them into 50 degree Fahrenheit water, you're going to get a stress response. And that stress response is going to awaken alert you because in part of the hormonal as well as the neural responses. So I think we're comfortable with that. The claims made, other claims made are for improved immune function. So people will say, oh, I haven't had a cold for a year um, since I've taken up open water swimming. Um, the evidence for that is is pretty weak. We've done studies where we've compared outdoor swimmers with indoor swimmers and their partners who you assume are exposed to the same sort of pathogenical, uh, pathogenic load. And what we find is actually swimming seems to be protective a little bit but it didn't really matter whether you were indoors or outdoors um uh we the other thing is the dose we know that if if it's going to be beneficial if it's going to prime the immune system the hypothesis is that it's probably a short-term immersion like the ones um that you do um when you go into into cold water jeremy so a couple of minutes if you stay in, if you overstay your welcome and you start to have a fall in deep body temperature, we think that probably impairs the immune system. So sometimes it's a bit simple to say, does this do you good or does this not do you good? Because it depends on the dose that you're getting of cold in terms of intensity and duration. And the final thing that you get is you get, I mean, there's quite a lot of conditions, type 2 diabetes, some um, mental um, well uh, well-being conditions inflammatory bowel disease, Alzheimer's. There's quite a lot of conditions that have an inflammatory component. And cold water immersion has, um, you know, is claims made for it being anti-inflammatory and reducing the sort of inflammatory cascade that you get when you get um, a stress because of cross-adaptation between adaptation to cold and then, you know, other stresses. And again, there's, you know, good hypotheses out there for that. But not good definitive evidence. So the big difference, and we call it the you know the twin edge swords. There's the side of cold exposure where you've got all the the cons, all the dangerous stuff we've talked about, mm-hmm. which is well evidenced, well researched, and then the pros, which are much more hypothetical, speculative at this stage, uh, for reasons we can discuss. But the the work just hasn't been done. There's there's bits of pieces of work coming out with people you know there was a, a Dutch study showing that 3,000 people who did cold showers had a significant reduction um, compared to controls if they if they if they had a you know their warm shower went cold for the last 30 60 or 90 seconds it didn't matter how long there was something like a 29 percent reduction in in sickness so there's these little bits of evidence uh, but most of the research is people asking people who do it whether or not they think it's good for them. But, you know, there's not many people you ask um, when they're doing something, do you think that's good for you, where they're going to say no. <laughs> that's fairly, it'd be strange to be doing something that you thought was bad for you. Um, so, I, you know, I, but, but the big but is, you know, a placebo effect is still an effect and anecdotal evidence is still evidence. And 
you know, as a scientist, I talk to loads of people who think this is really good and has been transforming in terms of their life. I mean, I'm talking, you know, we did a study with a young lady who had a mental health issues with depression. I mean, very serious depression um, in the, um, you know, close members of her family had committed suicide. And um, she came along and did some cold exposures with us um, because she'd had a baby and didn't want to be on drugs, bringing up her new baby. Mm. And after a couple of immersions in cold water, just, just sort of three minute immersions, she was really miserable. And we suggested that she stopped because, you know, that's, that's not our business to make people un, you know, unhappy. She insisted on continuing. Um, and after six immersions where she developed some habituation of that cold shock response, she said she'd felt the best she'd felt in years. Hmm. She went on to take up cold water swimming a year later um, drug-free and depression-free. So something's happening. Uh, uh, I can't really tell you what it is, unfortunately, but I've got, you know, we have hypotheses and speculated mechanisms. Um, and for those that it works for, that doesn't matter. I mean, it just works. But you see, as a scientist, if we know the mechanisms, we might be able to activate them in other ways for people who can't go and throw themselves into cold water. I think it'd be really good to dive into that anecdote for a second, because there was a lot in there. Um, I, so the, the three to six thing where it was like making her worse at three and, and better at six, what is your hypothesis there? on like, why? So the cold shock response that we've discussed, you can reduce by about half um, in as few as six, three to five minute immersions. Mm. It's very susceptible to habituation. And of course, if you see somebody like um, yourself, Jeremy, has been going open water swimming a bit, you probably don't get anything like the same cold shock response mm -hmm. as you went the first time. And that, that's a classic habituation. And we've done studies <clears throat> looking at that um, from a, a more a safety point of view, but also from a mechanistic point of view. So if you do a rather bizarre experiment and you repeatedly immerse one half of the body uh, and you develop an habituation, keeping the other half dry and warm, if when you've got that habituation, you flip the body over the other side, over the other way, and put the bit in that's never been in, you still see that habituation. Wow, that's cool so study. this is a this is a, an habituation that's occurring somewhere centrally. Yeah. Once you've got that habituation, then you retain at least half of it, so it goes from a fifty percent reduction to about a twenty five percent reduction after fourteen months. So it's a fairly permanent change. The problem with it is when um, trying to explain what going into cold water um, is like is a bit like trying to explain toothache. You kind of have to have experienced it. Yeah. So if I say to somebody, OK, we're going to do a study where we're going to repeatedly, repeatedly put you into water, at, you know, 60 degrees Fahrenheit, let's say, then when they do the first one, it, they truly don't know what that's like until they've done it. So on the second one, they're always more anxious and more nervous because they now know what going into cold water is like. Yeah. Whereas they tend, whereas you tend to translate it into air temperature. And of course, a 60 degree Fahrenheit air temperature isn't that bad. A, a 60 degree Fahrenheit water temperature is much, much more powerful cooling, um, you know, of fluid because of the you know, conductive and the difference in the, in, in the physics of the two of the two fluids. So after the second one, people tend to be fairly miserable. Um, but the good thing is that if you push on with it, um, it gets much better between three, four, five and six. 
So that that's the kind of profile that we would expect to see that by maybe your sixth three minute immersion, you can do this in the, over the course of a day. And um, by the sixth immersion, we're seeing about the half the cold shock response. Uh, and more importantly, from the safety perspective, people get their breathing back under control much mm. more quickly and they don't have such a big gasp. So anyway, that's what we did with this with this young lady. And by the end of it, um, you know, she felt pretty good. And I think one of the benefits, um, there's lots of benefits or potential mechanisms by which going into cold water can be can be of use and of benefit. And one of them is the sense of achievement. Hmm. Yeah. Um, in that, you know, you've you've everyone's you've been reading and everyone's been telling you this is a dangerous thing to do, and you've gone in and survived, and that's something to celebrate. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's other there are other aspects to it. And at the moment, the problem we have is going into cold water and doing something. There's so many factors in that. So you know, you're exercising, you're going into a, a near weightless environment, you're often going to a beautiful place, you're, def- you know, you're overcoming the challenge of cold, you're meeting people, you're coming out having a hot chocolate and a big cake. Now, all of these things could be, you know, the active ingredient in going open water swimming. And until you tease all of those out, you can't be sure. I feel like you just described opre plunge. I need to look into that. <laughs> it was like it was like opre ski, but plunging. <laughs> it is true. Uh, it mostly involves it mostly involves a hot chocolatey drink and a large cake, as far as I can work out. I haven't done that yet, but I think it's going to go part of my routine. It's, it's evidence based, per Doctor Tipton. I think is what I just heard. <laughs> well, I love the concept of. T- wearing a cold plunge like a badge of honor. I mean, I think we'll get into this at some point during our talk today, Jeremy, but talking about the, you know, the Chicago polar plunge into Lake Michigan in the middle of wintertime. But the, yeah, there's a badge of honor to that. There's, I think it's the same way that people, you know, do extreme sports or decide to jump out of a plane or decide to go bungee jumping or something that is, and we spend a lot, so much of our lives maintaining our own comfort that when you actively choose to do something that's somewhat dangerous, you know, or perceived to be dangerous and very uncomfortable, you know, there's a sense of accomplishment. And I didn't necessarily think about it in those words before, but that does make a whole hell of a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, there's a, the benefits range from, you know, biochemical, from, you know, the release of beta endorphins, a release of serotonin, vagal stimulation, you know, reductions in inflammatory cytokines. But then there's green blue therapy, social inclusion, distraction and challenge and and overcoming that challenge. So, you know, the potential benefits or the mechanism of the potential benefits are really widespread. And what's lacking at the moment are studies that isolate each one of those and and say, well, actually, this is the the most important thing. Um, And the problem is, you know, if I want if I make an application to get some funding to look at drowning, sudden cardiac death on immersion, hypothermia, swim failure in cold water, I'm you know, I've got a much better chance of getting that application funded than if I'm going to try and get some funding to look at the beneficial effects of cold water immersion on mental health, inflammatory conditions, immune function, because it's a little bit out there in terms of the mainstream medical research. So that's part of the obstacle to getting these questions answered. But the consequence of getting them answered, I think, is and moving to um, interventions that are natural in, you know, the natural environment and avoiding uh, therefore unnecessary pharmaceuticals is quite significant. 
That was an excellent point for, for our listeners and something that we, we would want to reiterate is that like, you know, when, when people are doing research, the funding is so important. I mean, it's kind of what keeps labs open and it keeps people doing their stuff. And, and those funding mechanisms oftentimes come from either government or, or, or charitable foundations that have, you know, specific purposes that they want to achieve. And so you're thinking about drowning. And we even mentioned in your, in your bio, all the things with like the military and such like that. But so when you start to get down to the nitty gritty of what you described, a lot of those fundings come from private entities that have a very, very interesting edge on why they want the study done in the first place. And so it creates bias. And, and so I, I think we would love to have these studies done. Um, and I think the you know, the average person that I talk to who isn't a part of medical research doesn't always understand why we can't get them done. Um, and I think that that's just an awesome point that you made about the funding aspect of it. It's just such a huge part of it. No, there's no, there's absolutely no doubt that the major obstacle to getting certain questions answered is getting the funding. Uh, the skills are there, the expertise is there, the facilities and equipment are often there. But, you know, you, you can have a, a Rolls Royce, but if you've got no petrol, it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. I think Julie does want to volunteer for that next study you do where you flip people and do partially part of the body and then <laughs> do the do other it. part of the body. She's she, <laughs> in the name of science, well, Jeremy, 100%. I, I'm not, I'm actually not even joking. I would totally do that. I mean, it seems no funding know. needed for her. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, the, the good news, uh, the good news, Julie, is that, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the studies that it would be interesting to do is to just immerse a hand and a foot into very cold water and get what mm-hmm. we call a cold presser response, mm-hmm. which is, you know, relatively straightforward to do. But you get quite a lot of the changes that you see with whole body immersion. And it may well be you get enough through partial immersion huh. to get some of these benefits. But until the study's done, we don't know. And what's so funny is that I feel like you get that little piece of information that might work and then... I feel like the next thing that happens before more research is done on it is that somebody patents some device that does that thing so that they can monetize it <laughs> and then make wild claims that, that it oh, does, yeah. you know, it, it, it bypasses the entire research arm and just goes to like, yeah, this works because I say it does and buy it now, <laughs> you know? Yeah, oh no, there's, there's an awful lot of patents taken out, as you say, uh, in the hope that one day the idea will be proven to be um, useful. Um, yeah. We come across that a lot and that's what ideas we've had and then you research it and then you look into that and you find it's already been patented long before any um, you know, evidence was there to suggest it had any efficacy. Yes. I'd love to get into some of the nitty gritty here and maybe go through some of the specifics within the protocols and then maybe even some of the specific harms. So just starting... Um, broadly on protocols, the most popular one being this Wim Hof method. Can you comment kind of on your experience with that and whether you think that there is validity to that method? Yes. I mean, I'm not, I'm not particularly party to it. Um, uh, And there has been some, there have been some papers published that are in support of it. My problem um, with the Wim Hof method is uh, the assumption that you know anyone should and anyone could do it, um, and so um, we've had a TV program over here on BBC, which he's um, been central to, with uh, lots of celebrities, you know, swimming in cold water and having buckets of water poured on them. And I, you know, I I just it I, I'm I'm kind of in two minds because I absolutely agree uh, as I've already um, intimated that. We need to do more 
physical activity. We have an enormous problem with sedentary behaviour and its consequences um, in high income countries. Uh, You've only got to look at the amount of money being spent on things like diabetes, um, heart, heart diseases and anything that anybody who's encouraging people to go out there and exercise, particularly in a natural environment where the cost to the climate is reduced. Um, We don't really add that cost into our consideration of whether we should go out for a walk, go out for a run or go to a gym. But the same amount of exercise in a gym is is creating a problem for the environment that we then have to sort out by having more gyms that are more air conditioned. Um, And, you know, we get we get into a descending spiral. So, you know, yes, I think that we have become what I call thermostatic. We live our lives um, without very many perturbations in our physiology, in our homeostatic physiology. Uh, and although the, uh, although animals, homeo, um, you know, homeostatic animals want that, you do need to perturb those systems. And we don't do it anymore. We don't go out and get hot or get cold. We, we keep pretty much a constant temperature. Um, and that's why I think we're seeing things like going into cold water, making people feel better. Uh, there's also a big tranche of things like hot immersions for people with peripheral vascular diseases and type 2 diabetes and improving their glycemic index, their ability to handle glucose. And the question you've got to ask yourself is why Why do we have to do that? You know, why, mm-hmm. why does a hot bath work and why does a cold? And it's because we've become so constant, you know, and we're not designed to be like that. We're designed to be hot and cold and running about. And, you know, that's that's where we come from. You know, escalators and air conditioning is relatively recent additions to our uh, to our environment. So, number one, I'm all for anybody who is is you know promoting people perturbing their physiology because just like the musculoskeletal system, the other systems of the body, if you don't use them, you'll lose them, mm-hmm. uh, and then you end up with health conditions that we have to spend lots of money uh, and lots of carbon output um, sorting out. So, but that now, but the the other side of that coin is, you know, there are ways of doing this that are safe, uh, and just assuming that everyone can do, uh, go out and throw themselves into cold water. I mean, we've had uh, a series of deaths as a result of people taking this up. We've had, as I've already said, we've had an increase of fifty two percent in the number of rescues required. Um, as a consequence of which, we've written a paper um, <clears throat> for the British Medical Journal. Um, which actually tries to go through some of the things you should do if you're Perfect. if you're going to um, you know take this up. So there's a, there's a, some advice for people who are doing medical screening for people to take who want to go and do cold dips, and there's some advice for people who are actually going to do it, participants, and there's some advice for those who want to provide the experiences. Because as you say, people are latching onto this left, right, and centre in terms of products, courses, this, that, and the other. But there, there's a safe way of doing it, and there's an unsafe way of doing it. And we just want to make sure we don't want to stop people doing what they want to do, but we want to give them a chance of maximising the benefits and minimising the risks. It was a tickled teaser there, there, uh, uh, Doctor Tipkin. Will, uh, will, is that published already? Is that something we can link in our show notes to people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that, that's that's published as um, cold water therapies minimising the risk. British Journal of Sports Medicine, and I think it was last year, was it last year? Time flies. Yeah, 2022. 
We'll uh, we'll definitely make sure that people have that link in the show notes to reference. But do you want to give us maybe a little bit of an overview of of maybe what people should do before they they do that, and maybe who should not be doing this since we're already touching on that? Yeah, well, so our advice for people who want to take this up, participants would be to get a medical check. Um, you know, this as a tropical animal plunging into cold water would is as stressful as buying a pair of training shoes and going out and sprinting as fast as you can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you wouldn't dream of doing that without some kind of uh, check that you've got the necessary cardiovascular health and fitness to do it. So get a medical checkup. Avoid doing it if you've got any known um, you know, comorbidities. If you've already got hypertension or you've already got cardiovascular disease or you know, there's a su- suspicion you have an aneurysm or you're on various medications, that, consult your, your general practitioner. Swim in an area that's safe, a lifeguarded beach. Swim with others. Um, uh, follow an incremental approach. We've talked about acclimatization to cold. So start when the water's at its warmest and do it with other people that are more experienced than you. Um, avoid prolonged breath holds, particularly with your face in the water. Stay in your depth. Don't stay in for more than 10 minutes for the reason we've discussed in terms of peripheral cooling and incapacitation. If you're going to swim, swim parallel to the shore so that if you start to get into trouble, you can just stand up and walk out. It's amazing how many people just make the mistake of swimming out to sea and they get in trouble and now they're out their depth and can't get back. Um, don't rely on how you feel because as you get used to cold water, um, you have no idea what's going on in your body. It's a well-known response that people who are cold habituated um, cool more quickly if they stay still, but they have no idea what their body temperature is doing. Um, so the best thing to do is to limit it by time. Um, as Jeremy, you say, you go in for two to th- two to four minutes. That's fine. Um, I wouldn't stay in for more than 10. Um, and when you get out, realize that because you've got this cold water, this cold front going into your body, if you've been in, let's say, 10 minutes, that's going to continue to move into the center of your body when you get out. So make sure you rewarm properly before you start doing things like driving. Um so, you know, I mean, these are all commonsensical. Wear, you know, wear a wetsuit if you need to wear a wetsuit. Don't don't get sucked in by peer pressure of just going in in a swimming costume. Wear, you know, bright clothing. Use a swim float. These are, I mean, it's not, this is not earth-shattering science. This is common sense and all aimed at, uh, all aimed at, you know, making sure that it's a positive rather than a negative experience. Yeah. It has some analogies to what we talk to people about shoveling snow here in the United States mm-hmm. um, in the sense of that people don't tend to think of it as an athletic endeavor or something that was going to take a lot of effort. And you certainly have to yeah. do it and you may have to do it at a time you're not you know, ready to exercise. And so I think maybe what I'm hearing as a great take home is that getting into a cold body of water is an athletic sport and you should treat it like an athletic endeavor and make sure that you're you know, taking all the precautions you naturally would for, for the analogies that you put out there. Absolutely. I, don't, I know of no other stimulus that will instantaneously increase your heart rate, cardiac output, blood pressure and ventilation in a way that um, going into cold won't happen if you just go out and start sprinting. Um, so, yeah, no, this is um, this is right up there in terms of a, a stress being placed upon the body. And, you know, you, you need to be ready for that and prepared for it. The other thing, we've talked pretty much about the whole body response in terms of the cardiac and cardiovascular respiratory responses. When you start to get down into colder water temperatures for longer periods, 
Um, most people have heard of frostbite, and that's you know unlikely in um, fresh water because of course it will freeze. Something like frostbite is un- unlikely, um, although we have had incidents of frostbite in swim at sea swimming because seawater freezes at minus one point nine degrees Celsius, and human tissue freezes at minus point five three degrees Celsius. So if you really get to the extreme end of that, which is the ice miles and things like this. Um, you can start in, in seawater, you can start to get close to the thresholds for frostbite. But perhaps more importantly, and much less well known, is a condition called non-freezing cold injury, which historically has been you know, called things like um, trench foot or um, paddy foot. And this is where the tissues get cold and poorly perfused, but they don't freeze. Um, but the long, lifelong consequences of those of you know, increased sweating, pain, cold sensitivity and even amputation in some cases are just as bad so you know we just need to be we just need to know make sure people are you know if they want to go on and take that risk then fine but at least we should educate them about that risk would you say that the risk of something like trench foot which obviously doesn't people don't think of probably if they're getting into a nice tub full of ice water is is something that people are still putting themselves at risk at without necessarily being able to prevent it outside of like durations and frequencies and things like that yeah i think that's i think that's exactly the right point the problem with non-freezing cold injury is, is we have little idea of the pathogenesis i mean we think it's probably um microvascular and um a, a, a small fiber neuropathy um, we have no idea, though, of the dose of the time and duration and temperature. Um, it's been seen in quite warm water, but with a longer period. And as the water temperature falls, the, dur- the period that you have to be in to get this condition is reduced. But we don't really know very much about it. But um, it may not be that it's a one off that if you go in for two or three minutes, but if you go in one or two, three minutes and you then don't rewarm properly, so your mm. tissues stay cold for the next hour. Um, and you're doing that every day, you know, you could accumulate uh, the dose necessary for this. And most, I mean, to be fair, most people who've done things like skiing or motorbiking or, you know, field sports in very cold weather have a degree of this. Um, you know, it's not a, it's not something you have or don't have. It's a, it's a continuation where most people who've done that will have, they'll know that they get cold feet and those feet stay cold for longer interesting uh, take on it is that females are more susceptible than males about the sort of um, the, the vasospastic disorders or the you know, disorders of the peripheral vasomotor system about nine times more likely in, in females than males so and it's actually quite a lot of the people who are taking up swimming and, and dipping are female it's really informative um I, I i this is this is really helpful for me i hope it's helpful for everybody else listening either that or i'm getting a one-on-one consult here which is great <laughs> um you've you've actually hit on a decent amount of these but i want to just kind of go through the specifics of a protocol real quick you've talked about duration you kind of said no longer than 10 minutes one of the things i i had there um also written down mm-hmm. was um people have sometimes advertised kind of going until you get to a certain feeling whether that be shivering or like something gets cold and you're saying just Go off time and go less than 10 minutes. Is that what I'm kind of hearing? Okay, so I'm going to start with the assumption that actually the beneficial part of going into cold water is that first couple of minutes, is that cold shock response that releases the various hormones we've talked about and is very neurogenic in terms of its drive. And that after that, the longer you stay in, um, you're probably doing more harm with times. Mm. um, So more is not necessarily better. 
uh, as a consequence of which, and certainly because we know that in the coldest water temperatures, if you start getting down into sort of 40 degrees Fahrenheit, you can be physically incapacitated in, you know, 10 minutes up to 10. We try to say not more than 10 minutes. Um, we also know the cold shock response, if you believe that um, speculative hypothesis, uh, max, it reaches maximum um, uh, response or magnitude between 50 and about 59 degrees Fahrenheit. So actually going into um, at temperatures lower than that, I don't think is going to be that much benefit. Um, you're just moving towards a threshold for non-freezing cold injury. Mm. So not only can we say the time, we can also say the temperature that we think would be beneficial. I don't think it's necessary. I mean, I don't think it's necessary necessarily to swim. And if you're actually doing this, you mentioned earlier doing it for, you know, weight loss and the thermogenic effect, you're much better off going for a walk. Because, you know, exercising in a near weightless environment is not actually going to put as much metabolic demand on you as actually just walking with you know, your full body weight. So that's not a real reason for doing it, I don't think. Um, I'll just, we can probably link this, but um, the, uh, just to counter the idea that you should do this to the same feeling. As I say, that as you get habituated to cold, you become comfortable at body temperatures that are falling quickly towards hypothermic levels. Uh, and the best example of that um, is uh, Jason Zerganos, who was a, you know, the world champion outdoor swimmer back in the 50s, who, and it was before really hypothermia was latched onto. And he became hypothermic on one occasion. They thought it was poisoning. And then the second time, uh, he was trying to swim between Ireland and Scotland. And he got um, a few miles from the Scottish coast and basically died from hypothermic um, a cardiac arrest. Um, and he was taken into a boat and open um, heart cardiac massage was performed on him, which he didn't survive. But at no time prior to that did he feel cold because he'd basically taken out all of his sensations of cold holy shit uh yeah uh, it's not a great incidentally that's not a great idea to start cutting people open with a pen knife when you think they've uh that it's not don't do that um but i mean the point really the point is that when he was being tested in the laboratory by the famous physiologist um griff pew um griff pew was in the water moaning um shivering like mad because he had no previous cold exposure J jason zaganos was next to him um, smoking a pipe and reading a newspaper, mm. feeling great. So don't rely on how you feel uh, to determine how long you should stay in because you might find that, you know, you can slip into unconsciousness. There's one of two people who have swum the English Channel three ways nonstop, which is a remarkable achievement. Um, and his name um, uh, is Phil Rush and he's from New Zealand. And he's taken, he now gets people to swim across the Cook Strait and has regularly seen people swim to unconsciousness when they become cold habituated. So, you know, as I say, I, that, that's rather a long winded way of saying don't rely on how you feel. Yeah. Just stick, stick to a time. That was really great. That was really helpful. Um, a couple other things frequency. So, is there like, a, can you do this too often? Is it per day? Is it per week? Is it? Don't do it a couple times per day, that kind of thing. I mean, I think, I've, I mean, most, a lot of the people I know just do this daily mm -hmm. because they find the buzz they get from it. So use, and I, I mean, there's nothing particularly wrong with that, provided, as I say, you're not going 
and overstaying your welcome or going in uh, to very cold, very cold water and not warming properly so that your tissues stay cold a long while and you move towards the thresholds for non-freezing cold injury. Um, but provided you're doing it safely and you provided, you know, the conditions are suitable because not every day, um, you know, are natural conditions the kind of, you know, that you want to go into. Um, but, you know, I don't think you can overdo it. Um, I, the, the, a really tough question is how infrequently can you do it and still maintain the benefits? Uh, and, I, and I think probably you'd need to be topping up in terms of maintaining, having established an habituation and maintaining it probably on a weekly basis. But I don't know anybody who only wants to go in once a week. Once, mm-hmm. they, get the, once they get the bug... These people are going in on a daily basis. And I work very closely with a large group called the Blue Tits in the UK. <laughs> and it's, uh, they're run by a lady in Pembrokeshire. And they've now got uh, 167 different groups. The one nearest me in Perrinporth has gone from a membership of 25 to 1,000. Um, and they're really keen on the safety aspects of things, the kind of things we've been talking about today. Um, so they're a really good vehicle for getting the safety messages out there. Um, but most of those most of those people are what they would call dippers. They'll just go in and they'll go in for a couple of minutes every day and it just sets them up for the day. And um, provided they're doing it in the ways we've said, there's yeah, that's fine. Um it's the one the one that I would be worried about would be the person who's doing it for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool. Mode wise, you know, the difference between, um, you know, taking a cold shower, immersing myself halfway, going all the way to my neck, going all the way to my face type of thing. We've talked about it a little bit, but um, mostly I feel like a lot of that talk was about the harms, right? Is there, does certainly talking about harms, is there differences and benefits as well? So um, a cold shower is not as stressful as a cold immersion simply because there's a smaller percentage of the body um, exposed to cold in a shower than there is when you do a, a head out immersion and um, that cold shock response the, the dynamic response of the cold receptors um, is determined by the surface area of the body exposed and the rate of change of temperature of the surface so you can't get the same surface area exposed at the same rate by showering however there have been people who have done showers um I mentioned earlier a study where people went and had a warm shower and turned it to cold for 30, 60 or 90 seconds at the end and reported a decrease in the amount of sick leave from work. Um, Incidentally, it didn't matter whether that cold period was 30, 60 or 90 seconds, supporting the idea that it's actually the sudden change in temperature rather than the duration of that change um, that's important. So um, we honestly don't know the minimum surface area that you need to expose in order to get any effect or the maximum effect. And it's a piece of work that should be done because, as I said earlier, you can then you've got the possibility of, of giving that stimulus to people who are never going to find their way to swimming in cold water or be or dipping in cold water or, you know. Um, but until that work's done, we have to make the assumption that um, you can you can achieve something with showers, but perhaps not as much. One of the things I feel like you mentioned earlier, I think, and then just to condense it in here because it makes sense, the difference between you know putting your body in or also putting your body and your face in at the same time because people like to plunge mm. just to hammer home on that real quick. Yeah. So when you the cold shock response, you'll always see that if you do a head out immersion, it's stimulated by the cold receptors under the skin, 
Um, but if you end up putting the face in, you evoke a different response called the diving response, dis dis um, discovered and described back in the 1800s by Paul Burt. We, we described cold shock in the 1980s. So the cold shock response does all the things we've said, pushes up heart rate. The diving response is the response that allows diving mammals go under the water for a long time. So it slows the heart rate down. It helps breath holding and it redistributes blood around the body to maintain normal blood pressure. Um, now, as you can imagine, if you get into a situation where you evoke both the cold shock response, trying to increase the contraction of the heart and, and the heart rate, and the diving response that's trying to reduce the contractive force and decrease the heart rate, then you get competition. Uh, and that competition, those two responses, the cold shock response is the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. The diving response is the parasympathetic. So if you've got those two fighting against each other, it's a really good way of producing um, arrhythmias. Mm -hmm. And that's why we, we call it autonomic conflict. Uh, and we think, for example, it explains why 80% um, of those that die in a triathlon, this is US data, um, die during the swim. And these are people who have trained like mad. I mean, there's no reason particularly. But if you put them in the situation of a triathlon competition where they're more wound up, they're more you know, excited, their sympathetic drive is greater, they might turn to breathe and they have to hold their breath because they're in this mass start where there's water everywhere. It's absolutely the perfect condition for evoking that autonomic conflict. That was beautifully done. That was very understandable and awesome. Uh, one more area of the of protocols, and then we'll we'll move forward. Um, you talked about warming and how important warming is. Um, is does it matter how you warm slash how quickly you warm? I mean, I think my favorite thing to do is just put on warm clothes and warm socks and walk around and naturally warm up. But I, I'm sure some people take warm showers or or other mm. concepts. Yeah, again, there's a sort of a, a, you know there's some misconception with this. Uh, if you've just been in for the amount of time we would recommend five or 10 minutes, then it's perfectly okay to have a warm shower um, because basically all you're trying to do is rewarm the skin. You've not any got any great reduction in core temperature, um, but you can also put on clothes and walk about. You may, you may stay uncomfortable for longer doing that because it just takes longer for that to, um, to, you know, warm you up. Um, where you don't start putting people into hot water or hot rooms is if they've been in a long while and they've become hypothermic. Because when you become hypothermic, you lose your um, responses that maintain blood pressure. You've already lost quite a lot of your circulating blood volume to what we call cold-induced diuresis, which is why you feel like you need to urinate when you've been in the cold a long while. And if somebody is profound, or, you know, is hypothermic, uh, then you avoid rewarming them quickly or putting them into hot water. But that should be virtually nobody that we're talking about who, if they follow the guidelines, are just going having a dip for five or ten minutes. They can come out and, and rewarm in the most e efficient way for them if they've got a shower available, if they've got a bath available, or, um, you know, wrap up and go and have your coffee and your cake. <laughs> I, I don't I'm, it sounds like i'm pushing coffee and cake <laughs> why not <laughs> we push we push coffee and cake too that sounds fantastic um I, that, that's i i think i fanboyed a lot here julie do you want to have anything to ask or want to talk about your polar plunge or something no um yeah we we do we have an annual polar plunge in chicago in lake michigan 
it doesn't seem like that's a situation where people necessarily are working themselves up to it. And I can't, if I had to take a guess at what the lake temperature of Lake Michigan in January or February, I imagine it is much, much, much lower than 50 degrees. Um, so that, to me, a bit seems like I, I, I don't think I would want to be the sideline covering physician for that event. Uh, that, that seems like a high, high risk event because I can't imagine that that folks are. Uh, well, maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but I, I, I would hope that that folks would give themselves time to acclimatize to it or train for it the same way that you would for a race or, you know, like we had talked about before. Um, Real quick, though, I would love to talk briefly about cryo chambers. Uh, They seem to be everywhere in sort of med spas in the U.S. In fact, Jeremy, when you first asked me if I've ever done a cold plunge, I hadn't, but I have been in a cryo chamber. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in the same one that I was in, Jeremy, because I know our, our baseball team that we cover um, nope. has had one. No, you didn't. You, you didn't miss much. <laughs> nope. But yeah, Dr. Tipton, do you have any thoughts about particularly about like dry cryo chambers um, and, and the, the potential benefits or, or none there? Yeah. Um, in terms of the cryo chambers, there's, um, you know, we've done a bit of work. My colleague, Dr. Joe Costello, has done some work previously. And um you know, there's not a great amount of evidence supporting a beneficial effect. I mean, the other the other point about it is, of course, you can get a very, I think, easily profound enough cold stimulus by cold showering or cold immersion anyway. So, um, however, um, it's fair to say that the people who do it, again, a bit like cold water dipping, do make a claim um, for its benefit. And, you know, as I say, anecdotal evidence is evidence and placebo effect is still an effect. But we are currently working with a provider of this, and a very good provider, to, to be fair. And we've seen, we've been looking at things like um, RB, the, the cold shock protein RBM3 that's been linked with Alzheimer's protection and haven't found any differences in um, cryo chamber users and, and controls. We've seen a lower cortisol levels with people who go in regularly and i think that's probably part of an habituation uh and plasma testosterone levels changing but there's no real idea or it's hard to interpret what that means we're in the early stages of looking at this but um the reviews that have been done um uh don't come out screamingly in favor of of a beneficial effect so you heard it here take your cold shower Save your money and take your cold shower from, from your cryo chamber if you're going to go that direction. Um, you know, you already mentioned one great resource, you know, the British, the, the, the thing that was published in the British uh, Sports Medicine Journal. Any other resources that you would point people to um, to stay up to date for information as things come out and such? Yeah, I mean, you can go on to our University of Portsmouth uh, website and you'll find stuff on there. Um, we can we can put some, you know, things alongside uh, this program, I'll, I can send you some other stuff. There's some mm-hmm. interesting stuff. There's a, a nice video online called a One Year of Vitamin C, where the C is spelled S-E-A, which is a young lady with my really, I mean, migraine, severe migraine. Um, and this is, you know, like having an ice pick pushed into the top of your head for yeah. three days. Yeah. It's, not, it's not a passing headache. And she took open water swimming and found it beneficial. And she actually, when she couldn't do it, did just cold baths. So isolating a lot of those other things we've talked about and still found it of use. 
so that's a really nice video to watch. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's there's lots of stuff out there. My, I think you just I, I I would just try and point people towards papers where somebody has actually done some research because like mm. like every area, as it becomes popular like this, uh, uh, you know, there are instant experts who pass on other people's information often misinterpreting it that then gets you know passed on by others and this whole myth um you know gets distributed around around the bazaars so just make sure if you're going to go and look at something that the that you what you're reading comes from somebody who's done some original research in the area it's one of the ways of yeah, it's, it's a modern phenomena of having so much information um, available to us, but not really knowing how to sift the wheat from the chaff. And that's really a, a problem in many areas we're finding. I mean, you know, when I started, you could only read stuff that came from peer reviewed journals. But now I can go on and read blogs and people's opinions and, you know, posts and things like this. But just make sure you establish, um, you know, the validity of what's being said. You just summed up the purpose of the podcast, so thank yeah, you for exactly. doing that. Yeah, and good it, for you. And we need, yeah, and we need, we do need more of it because you know what happens is as these as these things get misinterpreted and passed around, truth becomes belief, yeah. um, and you really got to try and get back to the truth. That's awesome. I uh, I really this is an amazing episode for me personally, and and and. Julie, thank you for taking the ride along with me. Um, and maybe I'll convince you to get into some of these cold plunges. Um, I think at this point, um, I, I'm going to give the floor for our wrap up to Julie because she, as our lovely audience knows, always has our closing line. I lack the creativity and mostly I'm just super excited with our conversation with Dr. Tipton. Dr. Tipton will also put, um, as you mentioned, your your Portsmouth uh, links uh, in, the, in the show notes so people can even find your profile and then find your studies if they want to go into that, that sort of thing too. Great. Jeremy, you always just give me the last... The last line, the last word, because you're 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 just the gentleman. You're an absolute gentleman. But yeah, so we'll end it like this. Um, our lives are generally thermostatic, and maybe that's not tip it all the way into autonomic conflict. But maybe just dip your toe in or a hand. Listen to your doctor friends. That's so good. <laughs> that's all I got. <laughs> The amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. The podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. Mm-hmm.